Good afternoon and welcome to the 179th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today we have a discussion of the pandemic in rural America with political scientist Keith Mueller. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word. Send suggestions for future guests and future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. The production assistant for COVID calls, Shivani Patel, has been uh, has updated me today that we have uh, 100 invitations out right now for members of the House of Representatives and of the Senate to appear on COVID calls in January, and we're getting some yeses. So I'll fill you in on that as we go. And please do uh, take this opportunity to suggest future themes and and future guests as we start planning for COVID calls going into the new year. As of today, December 2nd, 2020, there are 1,475,851 deaths globally from COVID-19, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 13,783,886 cases reported in the United States. There are now a total of 271,347 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States. That's up from 269,667 reported yesterday. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that now. Headline is, from blankets to backpacks to key fobs, Shauna Gilliland wore her love for the Iowa Hawkeyes. This was written by Mikkel Nyhaus and was published in the Des Moines Register October 24th. Shauna Gilliland always ended nightly chats with her mother with the same few phrases, good night, sweet dreams, don't let the bed bugs bite, love you and talk to you tomorrow. Although Shauna lived in a Burlington group home a few hours from her family in Lake Ozark, Missouri, she kept them close through frequent phone calls, ensuring their bonds weren't severed by the distance, said her mother, Martha Gilliland. Shauna loved hearing stories about her nieces and nephews and talked fondly about the family's camping trips. She called me at least half a dozen times a day, Martha said. Shauna, who had been living in the eastern Iowa River town for about a year, died of COVID-19 on April 25th, less than a month before her 45th birthday. Shauna was born at Illinois Chanute Air Force Base, where she was six months old. When she was six months old, a mysterious antibiotic-resistant infection left her with a burning fever. Unabating, the prolonged fever caused brain damage that resulted in a learning disability. Doctors told Martha her daughter's life had been irrevocably changed. She'd never be able to live independently, they said, or get behind the wheel of a car. But I worked and worked and worked with her very hard for several years, and she was able to do both, Martha said. Shauna lived in her own apartment off and on for several years while holding down a job as a cashier. When her living situation allowed, she'd take in a cat to cuddle with her as she watched movies or listened to country music. At 18, she got her driver's license. She had difficulty understanding the written test, but when the questions were asked aloud, she passed with flying colors. She drove much like she lived, carefully and with determination. Despite her disability, Shauna enjoyed crossword puzzles and books, especially romance novels. She didn't want a romance for herself, but she loved reading romance, her mom said with a laugh. Shauna was known to wear her love for the Iowa Hawkeyes whenever she could and jumped at the chance to attend any home football or basketball game. She wanted everything Iowa Hawkeye, from blankets to backpacks to key fobs, jackets, clothing, Martha said. It was all Iowa Hawkeye. Her love for Iowa sports was eclipsed only by her generosity. 
Quick with a smile and a hug, she'd buy trinkets for family and friends on trips to Walmart, excited to see their reaction when she gave them as gifts. She was one of those who would give her shirt off her back to anyone who needed it, Martha said. She ended up giving away a, a Hawkeye jacket to a friend who really wanted it. Shauna made at least one good friend at each of the group homes she lived in, her mother said, and could recall their names and a few tidbits about them years after she moved out. By the time she was in her 40s, she could remember every address number, every phone number we had from the time she was little, Martha said, and we had lived in over a dozen places. When her mother finally allowed her to have a smartphone last year, Shauna reached out to her old friends on social media. She loved Facebook, her mom said, and even tracked down babysitters who'd watched her as a child. As the pandemic raged across America, Shauna added a frame to her profile picture that read, stay home, save lives, and posted reminders to wear masks. Now Martha leans on some of the small gifts Shauna gave her over the years for comfort. The little teddy bear holding a heart emblazoned with, I love you, the decorative sign hanging in her parents' camper that declares, family lives here. Each is a reminder of Shauna's quick smiles, warm hugs, and the special way she ended every phone call. Good night, sweet dreams, don't let the bed bugs bite, love you, and talk to you tomorrow. Okay, I'd like to turn to our conversation for today. Let me introduce my guest. I'm really excited to speak with him. Keith J. Mueller, PhD, is Gerhard Hartmann Professor and Head of the Department of Health Management and Policy at the University of Iowa. He's also the Director of the Rural Policy Research Institute Center for Rural Health Policy Analysis and Chair of the RUPRI Health Panel. He's served as President of the National Rural Health Association and as a member of the National Advisory Committee on Rural Health and Human Services. He's also served on National Advisory Committees to the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. In 2016, he received the University of Iowa Regents Award for Faculty Excellence. Keith Mueller, thank you so much for making time to join me on COVID Calls today. My pleasure, and it was nice to be called a political scientist. Having been a while since I've been in a department of political science, so thanks for that. Uh, well, I read through your CV, and and maybe it's too disciplinary of me to call you that. I suppose we could call you a policy analyst, um, but you're not stuck in, in a single department right now. It looks like you work across many units. Yeah, yeah, and I've been been in colleges of public health now for um, about fifteen years. So. Well, let, let's start out, if, if you don't mind, the way I usually do, just to find out where you're calling in from and how the pandemic is looking there, and then we'll get the full uh, rundown on the center you're with and, and the research you do. Sure. I'm calling in from Lee Summit, Missouri, which is in metropolitan Kansas City area, um, where the, the pandemic uh, has hit harder over the last four weeks like it has throughout this part of the country. Missouri and Iowa, the two places I'm most familiar with now. Uh, but here in, in Jackson County, especially eastern Jackson County, uh, it's pretty stable. I feel safe going out and about because mask uh, ordinance is pretty rigidly enforced in, in this community. Let me ask you a little bit about the campus. Uh, we were talking before we came on of the challenges of such a, a big campus. So they have students back at this time. How they managed things? Uh, we had students back all the way up until the Thanksgiving break. Uh, and <clears throat> the, the university uh, maintained a couple of floors in one of the residency dorms for isolation and quarantine if necessary for students. There was uh, testing available. Um, by and large, I, I was actually pleasantly surprised at how well we did for the, the weeks between the start of the semester uh, and the Thanksgiving break. Uh, we taught classes on campus if they were sufficiently small. Uh, I, I taught a seminar, for example. I still teach it now. We're, now we've gone uh, entirely remote since the Thanksgiving break. Uh, the university's thinking was once students went home for the break, they didn't want them coming back on campus and having that additional risk of travel back and forth uh, that might generate the, another spike uh, in, in the community. Uh, so all in all, I think the university has done a good job. 
of handling it. Uh, we will be back again for the spring semester, but they've delayed it uh, one week to give plenty of time for uh, hopefully, you know, the highest risk people will have been able to, to get a vaccine even by then. And it, it looks like your public health school has been uh, really deputized into COVID-19 service, as, as have many public health schools around the United States. Uh, yes. Um, you know, our, our experts in departments of epidemiology and biostatistics have been doing a good job of modeling and, and tracking. Uh, they were more involved initially directly with the state than they've been for the last uh, couple months or so because uh, the state developed its own in-house way of doing things and uh, has been doing that. Uh, but a lot of, of research activity, including our own that you're familiar with, uh, being done out of our college. And, and our college adopted uh, you know, probably the more stringent policies on campus. In our building, we set up the classroom so that everyone maintained a six-foot distance in the classroom. Mm-hmm. In some other buildings, it was a 50% occupancy rule. Uh, we chose to go with a six-foot distance rule, which limited the largest class we were able to do in the building then was 35. Right. That's really interesting. They gave you discretion across different colleges to decide how you were going to uh, meet the, the larger sort of public health restrictions of coming back to campus? Uh, it, discretion with, with within our own building, yeah. Mm. That's interesting. Um, well, let, let me ask you a little bit about the, the Policy Research Institute, the Rural Policy Research Institute. We're going to get to COVID and talk about that mostly, but I guess if you could maybe set the stage for us a little bit about some of the key research areas that the Institute is interested in before COVID. Now, what mm-hmm. are some of the main policy areas that we think about these days when it comes to rural policy? Well, uh, let me start by saying RUPRI is a broad-based institute, uh, so it's more than the health portfolio that I've been directing for for 28 years. I'm now the director of RUPRI itself, and I took, okay. took that role about a year and a half ago when my predecessor uh, chose to retire. Um, and our portfolio includes looking at uh, community development, local development policies, as well as practices, doing a lot of statistical work around the uh, rural economies in, uh, you know, in the past, we've looked at issues like broadband. Uh, We have a cultural lab, cultural wealth lab that uh, looks at arts and culture in rural. And we've got a a framework that we use in in RUPRI of looking across eight different capitals. Uh, So we call it a comprehensive wealth framework. And, you know, our focus is to try to move our thinking about rural places beyond thinking about particular sectors or, and especially beyond thinking of it only in terms, in economic terms of what's the gross domestic product of the community. We think that rural sustainability and resilience really requires looking at some of those capitals like human capital, social capital, natural capital. Um, And human capital includes the the health portfolio, uh, cultural capital. And only by doing that are we really looking at the, the holistic community. That approach helped us uh, develop the uh, RUPRI and, and its approach and its framing before COVID. And I think it will be incredibly helpful as we think about how communi- rural places and people have come through the, the COVID mm-hmm. epidemic. Uh, because at the other end, they'll need vibrant rural communities. And the vibrancy of rural communities is that intersection of those those eight capitals. So just to stick with that for a second. So that approach is really interesting and in sort of locating these multiple different um, sources of, of strength and potential growth um, in rural areas. What were some of the findings? What are some of the things you've seen even in more recent years, last maybe four years around that. You mentioned environmental sustainability, for example. I think that's perhaps an overlooked area. We focus so much on urban sustainability um, because of the density. Um, But obviously, in agricultural-centric areas, environmental sustainability can be at the forefront of innovation. Yes. uh, 
both in terms of just looking at the, uh, as you say, environmental sustainability, so looking at the issues about the land and the air uh, in rural places, but also because uh, you mentioned urban density, so people are beginning to think about rural as a destination now uh, for uh, some movement uh, of population, and I think that's another dimension that we're starting to look at at, at Rupri as well. And we're also looking at things like the upward mobility of the population in, in rural America, which is tremendously variable, just as it is in, in urban. Uh, but And then what contributes to upward mobility? And that's where, again, some of those capitals come into play. We're learning that uh, and this was an aha moment for me being more of a health policy specialist. Uh, you know, I learned as an example about the importance of cultural capital when I did a project on recruiting and retaining healthcare professionals in rural places. You know, one of our panelists was a pharmacist who specifically said, you know, I came to this rural place because they had a vibrant culture and cultural activity in, in this area of the state and specifically uh, in this community. And we just don't always think about that as as part of what makes the community viable and vibrant. And in healthcare, you know, we've talked for several years about the importance of healthcare to economic and community development. I think we're seeing that even more so now, and there's more attention being given to, well, what is the role of the healthcare sector beyond just treating people who are ill or injured? Uh, and we're very interested in that and interested in the intersection of what the health sector does and what human services do in the community to maintain appropriate uh, community health. So you, you get into issues like, uh, believe it or not, in rural, you might think, well, you know, food is certainly not an issue, especially in agricultural communities. Well, it is. You, know, you still have food deserts uh, in rural communities because we haven't worked out how to do things like farm to table. Right. Uh, in all the rural places. So that's an innovation you may be familiar with in some of the cities around the country because restaurants advertise themselves that way now. Uh, but it's an innovation in rural as well uh, to bring in the food supply in an affordable way uh, in rural communities. Can you generalize a little bit about uh, parts of America where more rural communities are actually seeing um, social mobility in, in the last few years? Um, yeah, I wish I could. I can't. Uh, mm -hmm. That's not an area that I've paid a lot of attention to. I just know from my colleagues at Rupri that that's the case. Uh, yeah. So to talk a little bit about the inverse, you just mentioned the food deserts. Um, what about um, patterns of rural poverty and the more sort of intractable problems that we associate sometimes with, with rural America? I mean, in some ways, mirror image of the most densely populated cities in America, there's also entrenched poverty in rural areas as well. Well, there's a, a disproportionate share, and again, I don't have the specific numbers in front of me or even easily accessible, uh, but there's a disproportionate share of the, what are called the persistent poverty counties in rural versus urban. Uh, and you can think about that and think about the geography and think about the, the deep south, for example, where there are higher poverty rates. Uh, some of the upper Midwest uh, into the Northwest, uh, where, again, there are higher poverty rates in, in some of those counties. So that's part of the, the difference between urban and rural. And it's harder, more difficult, let me put it that way, in times to sort of break that historical trend, which is why you see the same counties showing up measure year after year or decade after after decade. I'm not quite sure where I was going next with that, so help me out. Yeah, here. well, no, and I wanted to ask you, I should have asked this at the very beginning, but how does the, how does the government define rural? And, and has that definition changed, or has that been a pretty static definition over time? <laughs> I, I chuckle because I think we, we did a paper with the Rupri Health Panel Oh, it's about a year and a half ago now. And we started out, uh, we were asked to do it to talk about rural definitions because at that point in time, there were at least, if I remember this correctly, 70. Oh. If you look across all the federal programs okay. and how they define rural for their particular okay. program. Uh, so, no, it's not stable. It changes a lot. The, 
the typical way we do it is, and the typical way government thinks about it is, well, there are metropolitan areas and non-metropolitan areas. And we tend to use counties to make those definitions. Uh, but from there, it gets incredibly nuanced because uh, San Diego County is a metropolitan county. You know, San Diego County is, I think, roughly 150 miles west to east. Mm -hmm. Uh, and after you get about 70 miles out of San Diego proper, you're in a rural country. Yeah. Uh, but you're still in San Diego County. Uh, I used to live in, in Tucson, Arizona, Pima County, Arizona. And there was a community called Ajo, Arizona. It was about 120 miles, I think, from downtown Tucson through a mountain range. But it was still in Pima County. Uh, so we're careful these days about sub. You know, when we do our work, we try to get down to a sub county level, and there's a there are schemes for doing that. Commuting you know, rural urban commuting areas or rucas, uh, mm -hmm. but even at the county level, we try to use codes for counties that enable us to identify those that are in metropolitan areas, those that are in micropolitan areas, which is ten thousand or more in the urban core. And those that are remote, that is, they're not bordering either of those two kinds of areas, metro or micro, but they're, we call them non-core. They're out of those areas uh, in the research. And we use that for our research activity in, in the Rupri Center. Uh, but programs like the ones funded uh, by the Office of Rural Health Policy use those sub-county definitions. And then they've been working over the last year to try to adjust some of that because they have found that definitions based on commuting patterns may classify a geographic area like a county again as part of metropolitan because some geographic portion of it, let's say a, a tip of it, heavily commutes into the city mm -hmm. for work. Uh, but that may be because that's the only place there are jobs. All the rest of their time, they're living at home in a county that's not serviced by the same services that serve the city uh, so yeah it's a it's a far more complex question especially for those of us who've been involved in, in rural issues for decades like i have far more complex than being able to say there's a simple rural urban yeah. dichotomy but i actually i really appreciate you going into that in that detail because in this in covid this time we've been learning, we've been learning a, a lot about, about the demands on states and on metropolitan regions and on counties and health systems and you know health officials at those levels and so you know your distinction that you're making there that you know to make a certain assumption about san diego county or harris county texas it, it might not be uh, an adequate way to think about how a health system could could deal well with one part of the county and struggle in other in other parts of the county right so incredibly useful to think about that that variability um i want to so i want to ask you about the health policy part and maybe we can use this as a transition into into covid 19. so set set the context for us a little bit to understand the major health care challenges in rural america in 2020. okay uh well the they're fairly persistent challenges. And you know, I'll have to start by saying, well, the conversation we just had is a clue that they're not the same everywhere. And there are some rural places right. that are thriving. So, but thinking of where there are the challenges, what are they? Uh, first and foremost, I would, would have to say workforce and having an adequate workforce to meet the local needs locally. So primary care in particular, uh, but also public health workforce uh, in, in the way healthcare is currently being delivered and will be going forward, uh, what I would characterize as a lay workforce, non-clinical people who are adept at helping uh, people understand how to adapt to, to their housing environment if they develop a chronic condition. Um, so workforce is, is a key issue. A second key issue is how we finance the the uh, essential providers, including local hospitals uh, in rural America. I've actually given you those two in the inverse order of which they get a lot of attention. Uh, a lot of attention over the last 15 years now has been on the viability and future 
of rural hospitals because something in the neighborhood of 170 of them have closed since uh, approximately 2010. Uh, so that, that's been a, a major issue and the financing is precarious because they, uh, especially the small rural hospitals in the smaller communities, don't have the volume of patient business to rely on patient revenue to support that hospital. Uh, and so we've, in public policy, we've struggled with how do we maintain that point of access uh, to, to care in, in the the COVID situation of the, since March of, of this year has really, uh, I know early on I talked about, this is shining a spotlight on the, the problems that we've always had. Because in those communities that have the workforce issues, that have the financially precarious institutions, you layer into that uh, what was happening back in the spring in particular when elective surgeries were, were postponed across states. I mean, that was done statewide. It wasn't done in hot spots. Uh, then those hospitals really suffered. Uh, and, uh, so workforce and, and, and hospitals, uh, you know, the, the finance situation, those would be the two most dominant. And then the third one is uh, not unique to just healthcare, but it's how we make accessible to a more remote population the benefits of technology and the changes that we're making in the delivery of services. Uh, so that becomes a challenge. What you and I can access, uh, even if one of our screens goes blank, we can come back in again. Well, if I was out in uh, a more remote area, I wouldn't even have that. Uh, right, right. And so trying to take advantage of, the, of uh, how we're able to change healthcare delivery is another challenge. Uh, just to stay with that issue around the hospitals, I wonder if you could explain to me a little bit more. So the, the model is that these are have been public hospitals, and, and so they're funded through um, taxes at the local level with state and federal um, funds coming in, or these are, have, are um, these more remote hospitals are um, satellites of big health systems, maybe um, in metropolitan areas, or maybe some combination? Well, it has become a combination. Uh, the, the phenomenon you mentioned about being satellites or part of is the way I would characterize it. We don't like to use the word satellites. <laughs> People get, can be offended by that a little no, bit. I uh, you know, that's more a more recent phenomenon. The, the longer term, you know, beginning with the growth of rural hospitals with federal funding from the Hilburton Act back in 1946. So the 40s, 50s, into the 60s, there were federal funds available for the capital it took to build the hospital. Hmm. Uh, you know, they, those hospitals were historically independent community hospitals. In the community hospital could be the county government. It could be a non-for-profit community hospital that has another source of maybe a foundation that supported uh, getting the hospital started. Uh, those are the ones that uh, are most financially vulnerable because they're, they're smaller, they're independent. Uh, and yes, in, in many instances, if they're county owned, there is a tax base that's helping underwrite some of that cost, as I said, that patient revenue can't cover. But one of the policy challenges, uh, since at least all the years I've been doing this, has been what do we do in public policy and in payment policy with Medicare and Medicaid, for example, to help maintain those points of access? Mm -hmm. So in the Medicare program, as an example, uh, in 1997, the, the uh, program was created, was called Medicare Rural Hospital Flexibility Program that established designation of what are called critical access hospitals. We have roughly 1,300 of those in the country. Yeah. Uh, those for those hospitals, Medicare pays on a cost-based system. Uh, and the idea was that Medicare would pay uh, its full share of trying to maintain that point of access by covering all of the costs uh, for their patients. Right. Uh, that's still not sufficient. You still need a margin because you need to be involved in system improvement, et cetera. So even those hospitals are, you know, try to maintain some commercial insurance coverage that pays higher than what that cost-based rate is. But that's an example of a policy adjustment that was made in 1997 and since 
trying to help maintain that that crucial point of access. I mean, if we lost a lot of hospitals uh, in in several instances now, my colleagues at North Carolina who track this can point out, you know, here's a hospital that closed and there's nothing else uh, in terms of hospital care within 100 miles. Uh, So there are some really critical points of access that you want to maintain. I mean, it's really another way to think about this sort of issue that we argue about in the United States incessantly around whether or not healthcare is a is a privilege or a right. And what you're describing there is it feels to me like it's in that same you know sort of vein of discussion and and that that policy um, discussion about whether or not it would be acceptable just to have those hospitals disappear. I mean, it sounds like there have been strong political advocates for keeping them there. Yes. And, you know, I like to think of it, of course, kind of the, uh, the advantage of being a researcher rather than being somebody trying to run one of those hospitals or provide healthcare in that, in that community. Uh, so I think of it in terms of what are the essential services you need to have in order to make a place, a viable place and a vibrant place to live. So I'm going back all the way up to that theme about rural sustainability and resilience. And, and healthcare services like primary care, emergency care, uh, short-term acute care are all services you really need to have in a lot of those places. Even if the population is, is smaller, you can't simply say the, the old classic, well, vote with your feet and go live somewhere else. Well, if everybody did that, where do we get our food supply? Where do we get our natural resource supply for, for the country? Yeah, we can't do that. You know, right. these have to be viable places for people to live, which means you have to find ways of maintaining the, the essential services there. I, I, I really appreciate that point because, it, you know, in the work I do on disaster, sometimes I remember after Hurricane Katrina, there was a kind of a discourse. So like, well, if hurricanes are going to hit this place all the time, why should anybody live there? And, you know, sort of way to beat. And somebody says, well, do you like sugar? Do you like coffee? <laughs> what about oil? We, these are places that, based in our economic system, the United States, people have to live there. And as you point out, they have to have the essential services of life. I just want to remind folks I'm talking to Keith Mueller today on COVID calls about the pandemic in rural America, and and he's really established a good context for us to understand as we think about the pandemic here. So let's make that turn, Keith, and talk a little Mm -hmm. bit about um, that. And um, you've been very busy with media. You've been very busy this year. You told NPR in October, you said rural is not a refuge. These counties may be sparsely populated, but it also means that sparsely populated is not an assurance that spread won't happen. So talk to us a little bit about um, what it's been like. I mean, you're in, in, uh, you have a vantage point from Iowa and Missouri and then the research that you do. Communities that at first um, must have seemed very distant from the pandemic, and yet this question that it was coming, and would you be ready for it? To walk us through that a little bit, that expectation, I suppose. You know, it, it was really difficult. I mean, and, and I reflect a little bit on my own behavior. I mean, in late February, early March, when, you know, we saw some signs that it was coming and we saw a little bit of community spread, I still traveled. I didn't hesitate to go to a meeting uh, in another city because I thought, well, it's not here yet. Uh, and I didn't think through how fast, because as Dr. Fauci has said, this is a very efficient virus. And it moves quickly. Once it gets any kind of of entry into an area, you can just think about how rapidly it spreads. So I I wanted to say that because that's a a personal reflection that indicates why somebody living in northern Montana might think, ah, you know, they're talking about, you know, stay away from big crowds of hundreds of people. There's no big crowd out here. So I'm I'm pretty secure. I'm pretty safe. Uh, What they didn't think about was there are times I go into town. And I go to the coffee house and, and have some coffee in, in the, the small town uh, in Montana. I'm still safe because there's so few people and it's still more open air. Well, what we've seen, especially since September, uh, has been the, 
the geographic spread into those places, uh, which we probably should have done a better job of predicting so that we could have done a better job of communicating with people that live there that, no, wait a minute, th this is still something that it's, there's no cure, there's no uh, stop for it yet without a vaccine. And so it is still going to continue to spread. We did mapping, uh, as you're aware, on our website, and the animated map is still still updated there on a daily basis of uh, the the rates by county in the country. And we started doing that in March so that we could see where there were counties where there was none. And at that point, there were multiple counties, particularly in the Mountain West, where there were no cases. And then we could see, you know, does it reach into them over time? We stopped. Uh, trying to show the one case to, to five case counties because the map got completely full. So there's no place left where this hasn't gone and isn't currently present. And it's because it is an efficient virus because once it gets into to one person uh, in those smaller places, and there was a really good story that ran in one of the, the national media coverage a couple of weeks ago from small town in South Dakota, uh, I'm familiar with the story because a good friend of mine is the family physician there. He's the family mm. physician in that wow. small town. And so they interviewed him uh, and he said, you know, what was amazing to him was once it got there, how fast it spread, because it spread when somebody went to dinner with three other people uh, in this town that size. It wasn't spreading in super spreader events and those kinds mm. of things. That's what we've seen uh, in, in the last few months. We're working now on trying to figure out how we can statistically uh, talk about that and say that. But just looking at things like our animated map, you can see it where there's a daily there's a map that the a publication called the Daily Yonder puts out a heat map of where the big spikes are. And you can see the deep red occurring in those small, sparsely populated counties. So when did you make that decision? I want to go back and find this, but as we're moving into September, there's no longer any counties in America that don't have COVID-19? Yeah, August, September, right around that time frame, we just decided this is this is foolish for us to continue to make a point about where is it spreading. It's, it's everywhere now. It's everywhere. And the, so the more important the thing that we've discovered is, and again, this is uh, sort of widely known news now is the the rate of increase and we just put out uh, on our website i think last week some graphs on this uh, and the the lines crossing between the spikes that used to be metropolitan and then lower spikes in non-metropolitan and non-core that's flipped now and the steepest spike is actually the non-core counties the next steepest spike is rural uh, counties, non-metropolitan counties, and then the metropolitan areas. Some of that is a function of we're measuring rates. And of course, the lower denominator means a few cases give you a high rate. Uh, but that can't explain that entire flip uh, and how dramatic it's been roughly since around the beginning of September. Hmm. And so I just want to underline also that people can find this database. So you started this. When did you start keeping the database? In March? Yeah. Okay, so you can go to rupri, R-U-P-R-I dot org, and you can check out this this um, rural database. I mean, we're all, I guess, become some more expert than others. So I'm still learning, but we've been taking in so much data this year. Um, but yours is unique in this regard, I think. Yeah, and there's actually a little bit more of a, a direct site. I won't type it in because it's really easy to say, and that's ruprihealth.org. Uh, and then when you go there, you get to a page that has everything that we've done on COVID identified in one line on that page. Right. Well, I want to encourage everybody to go in and look at that. And let me just add, so let me follow up with this because um, I remember, I mean, I'm in New Jersey and, and of course in February, certainly March and April, the situation here was total lockdown um, as it was in parts of the West Coast and in New York and major cities in the Northeast. And there was, I'm thinking about this workforce issue you were talking about earlier. There was, there was this phenomena of people coming from the Midwest to help with healthcare workforce. 
and they were coming um, to sort of shore up in emergency management, and but really to shore up in the hospitals and in mm -hmm. the nursing corps. And I thought I've, that's been on my mind a lot um, these last months because it resonated a lot with 9-11 too for me, that there was this disaster and it was a national disaster, but it was located in an urban place and it resonated across the country. And I'll never forget, you know, all of the fire and police and first responders who came from all over the country and left their caps and their patches there in lower Manhattan. And, and COVID seemed to be a replay of that. And, and I, I'm one, I bring this to you because I wonder if psychologically how powerful that was and how that worked against, again, this idea that COVID could arrive in these more rural areas, that this was really an urban thing and that's where it was gonna be and that maybe you could be spared in rural America. And, and actually there are two points to the, the tale that, that you just told. One is what you just said that it, it sure looked like it was gonna be an urban phenomenon and we watch it jump from one urban area to another urban area, you know, from New York to Boston, to Washington, DC, to, Houston. Uh, the other piece of that is it looked like it might be something that would bounce around the country so you could do the deployment of healthcare professionals, much like you do with natural disasters. Uh, so if a natural disaster occurs, you're not going to have natural, you, I wouldn't expect, natural disasters everywhere. And unfortunately, in 2020, on top of everything else, we've seen natural disasters occur in multiple places at once with fires in one place and storms in another. Uh, but where we are now with COVID, and this is a, a real problem, is because it has spread everywhere and because uh, we thought, we being the collective political we, I guess, uh, we thought we could start cutting back on the mitigation, you know, and opening businesses, et cetera, which just opened it up to spread again. And when it did, it spread everywhere. We don't have that capacity of moving the healthcare professionals around because they're needed in too many places at once. And so what we're seeing now is things like calling out the National Guard in the upper Midwest to help uh, to whatever right. extent they can. Some of them clinically trained, some not, but they can do other activities in those places. Calling people out of retirement to, to come back to work because we can't simply move the professionals around. The one advantage we do have versus the early onset of the, of the disease is we know a lot more about how to treat it in the hospital environment. Uh, and so we, we seem to be doing better on the pressure on ICU beds and ventilators in a lot of places than we were back in the, in the initial outbreak in New York. Uh, but we're under a lot of stress. I'm reading daily here in, in Missouri of the pressure on the hospitals in the Kansas City Metro and in the St. Louis Metro, because not only are they dealing with the, the outbreak in Metropolitan, they're dealing with all the patient transfers coming in from rural right. Missouri, where right. those hospitals don't have enough ICU beds and they're used to being able to transfer patients in. Uh, and that's becoming problematic. So again, reading the, what's happening here is, and I find this interesting, they're talking about where we're sending patients to hospitals in Iowa. I just, you know, I spend a lot of time in Iowa and follow the, 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 the data there on a daily basis. And they're really fortunate there are, there are beds available in Iowa because they've seen spikes. Yeah, so mm -hmm. really, you know, it's discouraging at times. And hopefully we've plateaued and we'll be, we can see some easing back on that pressure on the, on the healthcare delivery system. But it's been really, really rough on the, the hospitals and the professionals. But as you said earlier, it, it's really shined a bright light on you know somebody like yourself who knows these issues and follows them over the years. Um, you probably could have seen this coming. It would have been hard for anybody to see all of the nuances of what this has turned into. But um, but particularly this issue, you know, I think about you know a big urban health system. There's a lot of capacity on any given day. You could have a rough day, but you're not going to fill the ICUs of, of New York City. It takes a little while to get to that point. They reached it. Um, but, you know, you just as you were describing earlier, if COVID comes through one small community quickly, it seems like you could overwhelm the hospital there very rapidly. And then you're up against something, like you said, 
And a lot of times people have waited until they're very sick to go to the hospital. Time is of the essence. To then have to travel 100 miles to a big city health center. Um, I mean, I don't know the statistics on this, but it just seems like a really dangerous situation. Yes, it, it certainly is. Uh, you know, to their credit, uh, a lot of those smaller rural hospitals and their staffs do engage in ongoing thinking about being prepared and what kinds of referral arrangements they have with regional hospitals. Uh, and so those are in place. I mentioned critical access hospitals. Those hospitals, by that statute that created that designation, have to have uh, an agreement with an, a larger urban facility to accept patients from that hospital because they have a limited bed size by the, the nature of that program. So all of those things were in place uh, coming into COVID. And uh, in some rural areas, that's been the, the, life, the lifeline of being able to deal with it. But as you said, if it spreads rapidly in those places, they can still get overwhelmed. The reason I went through that tale was what's getting overwhelmed isn't necessarily the physical plant of the hospital. It's that system that relied on if a patient comes in here that needs ICU care, we'll stabilize them. We may be able to keep them a day or two mm -hmm. and then move them to another facility. That's what's getting I see. Uh, completely overwhelmed in, in a lot of those rural places and trying to figure out, you know, where we can send people. I, I don't remember the details. It's another one of those uh, press stories that I've seen of an example in one county of uh, the uh, the person responsible for that saying, I've literally lost lives by not being able to get them to another facility before they, they passed. Uh, so it, it comes down to the, you know, the human stories that you started this, this podcast with. Just want to remind folks that you're listening to COVID calls. I'm talking to Keith Mueller today about COVID-19 in rural America. Just to stay with this a little bit more, can we talk about nursing homes a little bit? I mean, this has been something across the United States, we're going to have to reflect long and hard about regulation uh, in nursing homes, I think. Um, is, is that a similar kind of story from, from the, the one we were already talking about with rural healthcare facilities and hospitals, or are there special nuances to rural nursing home care? You know, there are really not special nuances uh, that, that come to my mind on, on the nursing home side, because you're, you're talking with nursing homes about facility uh, that because it's congregate living can have an outbreak uh, and then the outbreak spreads to the community or vice versa, because there are people, the people working in the nursing home or living in the community. And so the spreads going one way or the other or both uh, in those. And that's no different than it would be, you know, here in metropolitan Kansas City or or in Iowa City, where I just moved from. Uh, but what's different in in rural is the same kinds of issues again about where they where those facilities can turn for help uh, in dealing with with the situation. Because again, they're not in a place where there are a lot of other large facilities that they need to, uh, as an example, a drastic example of, of vacate the home in order to to take care of an outbreak. Where can they? They house that, the housing is not the right word. Where can they transfer uh, the, the residents of that home? The um, other thing I wanted to sort of ask about this, and you mentioned it earlier about um, some of the longstanding issues with rural healthcare is telehealth. And so nobody wants to talk about this as a moment of opportunity necessarily. But of course, any kind of a disaster opens up improvisation, and it sometimes pushes through economic and social and cultural barriers which of longstanding. And I wonder, and I've talked to several people on COVID calls about telehealth for mental health services, but also for primary care services. You think this is a turning point for rural telehealth? Uh, yes, I do, uh, because we've... Uh, had waivers on what had been restrictive payment policies and other restrictive regulations uh, have all been waived during the time of the public health emergency. And unfortunately, the public health emergency continues. And so what's happening is uh, we are learning 
during the public health emergency, how effective telehealth is or is not in delivering lots of services, including fundamental services like primary care. So a question, for example, can telehealth help us with some of that workforce issue? Can it make the care that the local primary care physician, my friend in South Dakota, the care that he provides, can he do that more efficiently if a certain percentage of that service can actually be done through telehealth more quickly and easily? So a person doesn't have to come in and take a 15 minute visit block, which may mean he can serve more people. Uh, so those kinds of, those are questions that uh, we'd love to see answers to. Our health panel from that rupri.org site you, you had uh, has a paper out on, you know, what we should learn about telehealth policy coming through the, the pandemic and out the other side. Uh, we just released that about four weeks ago. So, yes, I think this is a, a turning point. And again, it's it's unfortunate that, that the PHE, the public health emergency, has had to last as long as it has, but it is giving us a, a knowledge base that we can use in, in a crucial policy arena like telehealth services. Is it possible, I mean, this is just speculating then, that as we go into 2021 and things get back to some semblance of normal, that um, health attainment in rural areas could increase because there will be new funding sources and a sort of breakthrough in the whatever cultural stigma hesitation there's been around telehealth? I mean, that to me seems possibility also with the digital divide. Uh, yes, I, I, I believe so. And part of it will also be to whatever extent uh, the population wants to disperse more uh, into more remote areas because they've realized what the disadvantages are of living in densely populated areas. Uh, they're going to want to be able to access, have full access to everything they want, including high-speed internet. Um, and so I think we'll see more attention to that. We're still going to have a tough battle in policy because the digital divide is deepest and broadest going out to the more remote areas right. and even deeper and broader going to what's called the last mile, mm -hmm. get it actually into every household uh, will, will continue to be a, a challenge for us. This um, population dispersal from cities, I mean, we're going to have to really keep watch on this. It, you know, so many um, high-tech industries, uh, big companies are saying they've put dates very far into the future in which they would have their employees come back. Um, in other cases, I and I have friends, you probably do too, who are in various industries who basically um, decamped from where they lived and live, live somewhere else now, either because it's cheaper or they perceive it's safer or it's closer to family. Uh, I mean, I wonder about the effect of that. And, and I guess since you're an expert in this, where would you look for the first clues that we might be seeing some sort of exodus might be too strong, but a redistribution of people who've been clustered in big cities into more rural areas? Do we have to wait for the census to find that out or are there gonna be other sort of clues to that in the near term? Well, <clears throat> I, I, we should be able to see other clues. I mean, there are data more current on, on housing permits, for example, that you could use that database to see where are more of those being uh, issued. Uh, you could certainly look at um, commuting data uh, and how far are people commuting or not commuting. Uh, the American Community Survey, uh, which is the annual survey that's done on a sampling basis rather than the decennial census, uh, can be helpful. But unfortunately, that one, to use that to look at the smaller rural areas, we need a five-year rolling average. Mm -hmm. So it takes a while to be able mm -hmm. to, to detect those trends. What I'm interested in in trying to follow is if the if there is a, a notion of destination and people moving to different destinations where are they going mm -hmm. and my my own personal working hypothesis is they're not going to disperse widely 
into sort of remote rural areas. They're going to disperse to places that have amenities that attract them. Uh, so they're going to disperse to the uh, western edge of the the, the the Rockies in Colorado, mm-hmm. uh, or they're going to disperse into places in, in Vermont and, and New England that they didn't disperse to uh, before. It doesn't mean that they're going to end up in uh, the places when you asked about the poverty, uh, persistent poverty counties. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean they're going to go there, but maybe they will. And so that's something to mm-hmm. to watch and then... Uh, on the negative side of that is, well, what impact does that have on issues like environment? Sure. Uh, in those places. And there was a, a good story. I don't remember which national publication ran it on what's been happening in Bozeman, Montana, in that river valley, uh, with a lot of population movement to that area, as well as continued tourist attraction. And being somebody who really likes going there from, from time to time, I was fascinated mm-hmm. to think. Gee, those trails that I used to be able to go park and be one of the three people hiking, it was talking about, yeah, you can't anymore because there's no parking available. It's, it fills up in the early morning hour and that's it uh, for the day. So there, there are consequences uh, to to being more of a destination point as well. And that's it's really interesting to think about that, uh, you know, what you would see. And it probably won't be big enough to well, I don't know. Maybe it will be big enough to have a sort of electoral importance, but it doesn't have to be electorally important to still be important, for example, as you're pointing out, in the health system or right. in the infrastructure system. People start demanding amenities uh, and infrastructure in places in a large enough number, they're going to get it. Yeah, that's what I'm interested in following is what is the mm-hmm. impact on, on infrastructure. I want to ask you, we're almost up on time, but I did want to just get a quick uh take from you on the political um, the political valence of COVID-19 and particularly in the Midwest um, where you know we tend to think of these as red states but that's pretty reductive I mean you look at a state like Kansas um, where you have a Democratic governor and uh, it's been interesting to follow what's been going on there whether you had um, she pursued a statewide statewide um, pretty I think aggressive um, COVID public health strategy, but then various counties opted out of it. And it re- resulted in a public health study that showed, I think pretty conclusively, that the masks were working in counties that were following the governor's order and not in other places. South Dakota and even in Iowa, governor's been pretty reluctant. I think in South Dakota, reluctant is is not correct. She's been more aggressive in denying yeah. Yeah. COVID, the seriousness of COVID. Um, But in every case, almost every case, those governors have had to backtrack. uh, And if they didn't eat their words, they at least did put out um, mask mandates. And I think that's true in Iowa. In the last couple of weeks, I was trying to follow Kim Reynolds on on that. So I guess I don't even have a question in there. I guess maybe just sort of your own reflection on on how you seen the politics of covid in states that have large rural areas. I think the the politics have been the the governors in those states and or legislatures uh, have reflected what they believe to be the culture and the desire of their constituents. And so in classic political science sense, it's the elected official following the constituent rather than the elected official getting out in front as a leader in saying, you know, this is really what we need to be doing. And I think that's that's one distinction that, that you could make. Another is uh, some of the governors, I think legitimately, or legitimately may not be the right word, but I think that they've been balancing the the impact of COVID and the impact of what would happen if they shut things down or got much more restrictive. On, on the economy. And you can see some differences. I w- would love to see the, the research that finds the difference in, in the spread of the disease also then look at what's the difference in the strength of the economy and does that have a health implication back on on the individual. So I think that's been the, the reasoning that some of those governors have used, but I, I really think it, it comes back to they've been following what they perceive to be the, the desires of their constituents without, uh, you know, get a little subjective here, really probing uh, 
well, what's driving those desires? And does it make sense for me to follow the same reasoning my constituents are following? Or should I adopt a more leadership role, try to get out front? And early on in, in our conversation, I talked about how important it is to think through how we're communicating with the public, if you will, about a lot of this. And I think one of the hindsights that people in public health are going to be doing is where did we go wrong in public health messaging and communication that a lot of what we believe is the wrong message has gotten out there mm-hmm. and the, the right message that's empirically supported, as you just said, has not penetrated uh, in a lot of those places. It's, um, it's fascinating to me. I mean, I'm from Texas originally. Um, I never would have thought that wearing or not wearing a mask would become a defining sort of uh, political statement uh, in this year. And yet it had, and I agree with you. And this is one of the challenges, of course, of a pandemic. The scientific knowledge frontier is moving literally in real time. Uh, And so, you know, whether or not to wear a mask, um, as the advice shifts, it got sucked up into the election, electoral politics. And that's been unexpected. For me, I suppose, as a political scientist, you've also been interested in that phenomenon. Yeah, and I, I just keep shaking my head. I, I don't quite understand it um, in part, but also in part uh, because of being a, a rural policy scholar. Uh, you know, I, I do kind of understand it that, you know, if, if you have a lifestyle that is this very independent uh, lifestyle and I don't want to be told what to do. I mean, we could trace this back. I mean, I lived in Nebraska for a number of years, including the year in which the voters repealed a motorcycle helmet law that the legislature passed in a referendum. Mm. Voters voted it down. And when they voted it down, it looked at around 11 p.m. like it was going to stay in place. And then when the western third of the state votes came in, which is entirely rural, it was defeated. Interesting. And just this, you know, you can't tell me what to do, period. Yeah. And that applies to anything the government tries to, to tell me. And so I, I kind of, that's why I said it's a cultural thing. I, I do, uh, I do understand that that cultural phenomenon is out there. Mm. Uh, even if I don't agree with it, I can see that a lot of people do. Uh, well, we're coming up on on time here, Keith. I just want to give you one, you know, maybe you can tell us a coming attraction. I'm so impressed with the work that your center has been doing at this time. And um, it sounds like you already have a pretty full slate of research going into next, next year. But um, point us to one or two research areas that are sort of most exciting for you. And again, I say that in a measured way. One wasn't allowed to think about a pandemic as exciting, but from a social science perspective, this is we're learning right now so what's what's uh, most on your mind as you think about moving into the next phase of the pandemic and research well one is the thing that we talked about trying to understand how this moved through the country and which populations are are affected more or less than others uh, i want to get a better understanding of that uh, within rural america and the other is to gain the best understanding possible about how our healthcare providers are able to deal with things like a pandemic and what do we need in policy that makes it easier for them to deal with it. You know, taking care of their financial needs is one, and, and the CARES Act included a special earmark for rural hospitals. But I'm interested in the dynamics of sort of thinking of it regionally. How do we handle uh, who does what appropriately and making sure that we have the capacity within a region to handle uh, public health emergencies and a communication system that facilitates that. I want to remind everybody that you've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch COVID calls every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. Tomorrow I'm going to be talking with Paul Farber of the University of Pennsylvania. He's the co-founder of Monument Lab. He was a guest earlier on this fall in COVID calls talking about some of their work around memorials and COVID-19. So please do join me for that. And I want to really thank Keith Mueller. Uh, I've learned a lot in this hour. Thanks so much for your patient explanation and, and keep up the great work you're doing there. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow at five o'clock.